0: Why don't we start with prayer here, and then we'll dig into Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Uh, let's see, who hasn't prayed yet in a while. Nathan, why don't you go pray? Dear
1: Heavenly Father, we're just thankful that we're able to be here today to learn from your word. Uh, just pray really to give Dad a clear mind, allow him to have the right words to uh, teach this lesson. Uh, just give us a good years that you be willing to hear and
0: apply the truths from your word into our lives. Amen. Okay, so for those of you who are new here... I do have candy for people that will read scripture for us. I'm not passing around, but you can come up afterwards if you've read a verse and pick out a piece of candy and take it home for you. So, motivation. Uh, Philippians 1, 27 through 30. We'll start with someone to read the passage for us. Josiah, your hand went up really quick. I'll let you do that. Um, so where we're at here, the last uh, several verses before this, Paul is confirming to the church that he's within God's plan, that uh, this imprisonment is not something outside of God's sovereignty, outside of God's control, that God's actually using it for the furtherance of the gospel. And so he's assuring the church, don't, don't worry, don't fret over this, God is working. Um, then last week we talked about how he talked about he doesn't know what his plans are going to be, and in, in the fact of what's going to happen to him. Uh, he's in prison, he doesn't know if he's going to stay in prison, he doesn't know if eventually things are going to turn on him and he's going to be executed, or he doesn't know if he's going to be released. Um, but then he reassures the church, no matter what happens, this is still under God's control, and no matter what happens, I'm going to respond correctly. And we get that, that verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain, because he's going to go on living, magnifying God, or in death he's going to magnify God. And either way, he's going to respond correctly to that. And so that's, that's a really high-level summary of where we've been. Um, now Paul's going to instruct the church on what they're to be doing so he, he spent this time talking about his life what's going on in his life how he's responding to the trials in his life now he wants to encourage the church that they need to live in a right manner and again he's, he's not going to stop from bringing up trials and suffering in This we're going to talk a little bit about that um, and, but just looking at Paul's life and how he responds he says now you as a church you need to do the same thing you need to respond the same way um, so in Philippians 1.27 here, uh, we read, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So number one, the point here is, live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Yeah, that's right. That's what we need to do. Um, so... He talks about your conduct being worthy. He's talking about a worthy conduct here. He starts this off by saying, "Only." Now, it's not that this is the only thing we need to do in the Christian life, but he's he's making an emphasis. This is a main point. He's just talked about how uh, he is in prison, and God is using it for the furtherance of the gospel, and how he's going to continue his gospel ministry and continue to share the gospel at any opportunity he has. And he's going to live by that to magnify Christ through the gospel. Now he's telling the church here, only you have a conduct that's worthy of the gospel. And so it all revolves around what Christ has done for us, what Christ has sacrificed for us, and how he has purchased us, and that they need to live in a certain way. So the idea here is that this is kind of a primary thought. Above all things, above everything else, have your conduct worthy of the gospel. Uh, conduct here is a way we live, how we conduct our lives. so what you're doing in everyday life this isn't just Sunday morning, Wednesday night type stuff. this is you know when you go to the store, when you go to work, when you're at home with your children, uh, when you're sleeping in your bed that your life ought to reflect what's right, what's good, and what Christ wants you to do to reflect the will of God and to live for his kingdom as we talked about this morning in the sermon. So the way we live our lives, every aspect ought to be worthy. Of the gospel. Um, So worthy, um, the idea here is there's a standard by which we should live, that we should live in a certain way. God um, gives us the whole New Testament and to some extent the Old Testament for principles of things we're supposed to be doing, things we're not supposed to be doing, and how we are supposed to live. And, And by doing this, by obeying God, by living according to his commands, by living according to what he wants us to do, his will, we live worthy of the gospel. Um, this concept comes up in a couple other places. Ephesians 4.1, I'm going to read this because we're going to come back to this passage. Um, it, and I, um, so I'm going to read just the one verse, but I'll have somebody read this later. Uh, Ephesians 4.1 says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. That's kind of the same concept here, right? The gospel, the calling with which you are called. You ought to walk worthy. This is not a unique concept in Scripture. Um, Let's look at Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Who wants to read that? Jonathan, go ahead. So and I think here you see a progression. I think these are all commands. These are all good things. But you see a progression here that you start out, you're, you are filled with the knowledge of his will, what he wants you to do. You're filled with the knowledge of this is what Christ's commands for me are. Um, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the wisdom that God gives, the understanding that we receive from him, we know what God wants us to do. Then we take that and we walk worthy of the Lord. So we know what we're supposed to be doing. So then we start doing what we're supposed to be doing, Right. And we obey the things that we know are true. Um, and, you know, a lot of times this is where the disconnect comes. Because we as Christians, we have the Word of God. We have it taught to us all the time. We sit in sermons. We sit in Sunday school. And so we know what the Word of God says. You know, I could, t- I could ask any one of you and give you a situation and say, is this right or wrong? And you could tell me, yeah, that's right, that's wrong. And you may even be able to tell me verses and passages that apply to that. But, but yeah, we still do what's wrong. So we need to have that connection between what we know is right and walking in that way. But as we walk in the way that's fully pleasing him, then we become fruitful. Then God produces fruit in our lives. We grow in Christ. We we see his will accomplished in the world. And then uh, we continue from there, increasing the knowledge of God. As you do it, as you trust him, as you walk in his ways, you get to know him better. And so you start out by knowing him. You end up by knowing him. It's all a cycle that works together. Um, so we should live by a standard that is uh, worthy of the Lord, worthy of his gospel. First uh, Thessalonians 2.12, another reader. Nathan, go ahead.
1: That you would walk worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and
0: glory. Yeah, and here again, that you walk worthy of God. He calls you into his kingdom, into his glory. There's, there's a reward. There's a, a future hope for you. And because of that, it affects the way you live now. That you walk worthy of what he wants you to do. There's a right way, a right standard that we need to walk. And this is worthy of the gospel here, the good news. The gospel saved them, and they are to live like saved people. So, you know, it, it's... If the gospel's had an impact on your life, if it's changed you, if it's brought you into a relationship with Christ, it ought to change also the way you live. And you ought to walk worthy of that gospel. And it's the gospel of Christ. There's only one gospel that changes people. Paul talked about different preachers earlier on that, that preached from self ambition, but they were preaching the one gospel. They were preaching the gospel of Christ. And so he's reminding them the gospel of Christ is what changes them. So we need to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, worthy conduct. And one of the evidences of this is, letter B here, a clear testimony of unity among God's people. Um, and Paul starts this section out by saying that wherever I am at, um, and he's kind of... Um, relating what, again, what he talked about in the last part, whether he be delivered or not, whether he live, whether he die, whether he be imprisoned. So he, whether he comes and sees them, he, he has this idea that he will be able to come and see them, he will be released, um, but he doesn't know for sure. Uh, so this relates back to his expectation of being freed from Roman imprisonment or whether he's absent. And because he's talking about here that he will hear of their good works, I, I think this means absent, that he remains imprisoned. I don't think this is talking about when he's talking about absent from the bodies, present from the Lord. I think he's just saying whether I'm not there in Philippi, I'm still going to hear about what God's doing in your life. And so he's going to hear their affairs, literally hear concerning you, concerning what's going on. Um, and we know that Paul had many uh, fellow co workers, friends uh, like Timothy, like Titus, like. Um, some of these others, uh, Luke, that, that would go and, and would uh, visit some of these churches uh, and bring back reports. And so he's going to hear one way or another what's going on with them. And what he wants to hear is that, uh, if we read there, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So two things he puts in here, that they'd stand fast. This is the character of their conduct, that they would be standing fast. Um, the idea of standing fast here is steadfastly holding one's ground regardless of the danger or opposition. I got this from MacArthur. You see that. It's in his commentary. There's the page. You can look it up yourself if you want. But it's, it's holding one's ground. It's staying in place despite what's coming against you, despite what pressures are coming in your life, despite what um, tribulations are going on around you, that you are standing firm in what you believe. Um, Philippians 4, one another reader, please. Elizabeth, go ahead. Hear this later in Philippians. He's, he's reminding them they need to be standing fast in the Lord. They need to be standing for what's true and standing firm in what they believe and what they do. Um, 1 Corinthians 16.13, another reader. nice short one. Let me go ahead. So here, among other things that he commands, he commands them to watch, to be diligent, uh, be, be aware of what's going on. Stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in what you believe. Stand fast in what uh, saved you. Be brave and be strong. So a, a bunch of commands here right at the end of 1 Corinthians. So they're supposed to stand fast, and it's supposed to be in one spirit. Here we're going to go back to Ephesians 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. I'll need another reader. Uh, Josiah, go ahead. In verses 4 through 6, look at how many times the word one appears in there. Do you think that Paul's trying to get the idea that we're unified in a number of different things? And I'm going to jump back before we get to that here. Um, sometimes when you copy and paste things, you might not grab the first letter, and the first letter is a word, so it should say, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Um, apparently I didn't grab the I. Um, so if you want to add that in there, be more accurate, you can do that. Um, Beseech you walk worthy of the calling with which you're called." So he's telling them, there's a way to walk that's worthy of how you are called, worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to explain, what is this worthiness? How is this, how is this worthy walking? Well, it starts out with all lowliness, with all gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So you kind of see these ideas. Some of these are from the fruit of the Spirit, right? we see those in there? There's a way we're supposed to live that, that reflects who God is and what He wants for us. That you have lowliness, gentleness, long suffering, bearing with another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is relational here. That you're working hard to be unified with other believers, that you're, you're working hard to be at peace with other believers as God wants you to be. That's part of walking worthy of the, the calling with which you were called. And he says, this is why. There is one body. And I think this body is the church he's talking about. There's one body in Christ. We're all saved into the same body, so we're all one. Uh, you can look at um, places like First uh, uh, Corinthians 12, if you want to study more on that. Um, there's one body, where was I? One spirit. We all have the same spirit inside us and dwelling in us if we're saved. The Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. He's indwelling us, empowering us, helping us to understand the Word of God amongst many other things. Um, There is, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. We talked a couple weeks ago about the hope that we have in Christ, that this is not the end of things, that even if our body perishes, there's still hope because we have an everlasting kingdom. We have an everlasting king. We will be with the Lord forever. So, We have one hope um, of your calling, one Lord. This, I think, is referring to Jesus. He's Lord over all of us. Uh, One faith, and this idea is that we have have, uh, this, this set of beliefs based in the Word of God that we all believe. We have the same faith. One baptism, and this is, I believe, a spiritual baptism here that we're baptized into the body of Christ. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so there's this unity here, and that's part of walking worthy of the gospel, is that we be unified, that we be together, that we uh, be working together. In fact, later on in Ephesians 4, it talks about that you know, God gives us uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of saints for the work of the ministry, that the body would grow together, that we would all do our part to edify and build up one another. And so this is part of living worthy of the gospel, that we're doing what God wants us to do, we're accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. It also says that we also are striving together, uh, back in Philippians 1.27, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, uh, striving together, let's look at Romans 15, verse 30. Eric, go ahead. I brought up this verse because this word strive together isn't used very often in the New Testament and when it is, uh, the word strive, a lot of times it's it's used in striving against things. It's not used in the striving together uh, instance. This is the other place where it's used as striving together, is in Romans fifteen thirty. And here the idea is strive together with me in prayer in prayers strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So it's to be praying together, to be sharing the same prayers for each other. Um, And that's part of it, but it kind of gives you that idea. What is striving together? It's it's just working together. It's uh, doing the same thing so you can accomplish the same goals. Uh, Let's look at Ephesians 4.16. Who would like to read that? Brian, go ahead. I see another copy error. I left the letter off. Um, Ryan, thankfully, figured out the word. Uh, so the whole body is joined and knit together what every joint supplies according to the effect of working, which every part doesn't share. But what's the purpose of that? That we're all working together, that we're all connected together. The purpose is that we cause growth for the body. That's for the church. So the church is working together to help the church grow. We, ought to, we need to be invested in one another's lives. We need to be affecting one another so that the church can continue to grow, that can continue to be what God wants it to be. Um, For the edifying of itself in love. Um, You think about the body. Um, Hopefully you try to take care of your body, right? You you try to do things that are good for your body so you don't get injured, so you don't get sick. Um, You try to be healthy, hopefully. The body, you, you understand that I need to do what I need to do to help myself, have the best health I can. The church needs to be looking at the church the same way and saying, this is, this is our body. This is who we are. We need to be working. We need to be doing our part. We need to be helping one another so that the church is healthy, so that the church is what God wants it to be. That's what we're here for. We're here for each other. We're not here to hear a, a fun sermon. We're not here to sing some, some neat songs. We're not here to you know hang out, and have coffee and treats and whatever... We're here to help each other grow. That's the purpose that God put us together. Now, we add all these other stuff, things on. Um, You know, I I hope the singing is worshipful. I hope the the ministering of the word is beneficial to you. That helps you grow. The coffee, I don't know what that does for you, but uh, some of you enjoy that, so that's fine. Uh, I'm not a coffee drinker, so. Um, But the real reason that we're here, where we're gathered together, is so that we grow into what God wants us to be. That's why we're here. Um, So we're to strive together with one mind. Philippians 2 1 through 5. Very familiar passage. Nathan, you want that one? Yeah, I stopped it there. There's more. Um, we're going to cover this in the next couple weeks, so I'm not going to go too deep in here. But verse 2 says, it, after all this stuff that Paul says, if this stuff is true, and the answer to this is yes, this stuff is all true, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, so by, by thinking the same way, by having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Um, And then he talks about what that means. Nothing being done through selfish ambition or conceit. uh, Seeming others better than yourself. Look out for not your own interests, but the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, if you don't know what that looks like, well, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. And he goes on to say what Christ's mindset was. How Christ being God, how being the one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of being exalted, came, became a man, humbled himself, even to the point that he let men kill him because that's what God wanted him to do, because that was what was beneficial for us. That's the kind of mindset we ought to have, that it's not, I'm not important. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the one that people need to worry about if they're pleasing me, if they're doing stuff that benefits me. I need to be seeking others, to doing what's best for them, doing what's best for the church, helping others out. And Christ's mindset that he could have come down and demanded that we all fall before him in worship. Instead, he goes to the cross for us. That's the mindset we ought to have. And I certainly don't have any worthiness that I can demand that people worship me, so why do I act like, hey, you ought to serve me, you ought to do what I want to do. No, that's that's wrong and backwards. Our mindset ought to be the same as Christ. So, uh, again, we'll talk about this a little more. The next week we'll start in this passage and we'll see how far we get. Uh, I think it's going to be at least a couple weeks. Um, we'll talk about that a little more. And then uh, he says, we're striving together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Um, you know, there's, there's this common goal here that the one mind is focused around the gospel, the good news of Christ. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Anyone want to read that? Lynn, go ahead. And this is kind of Paul's mindset. I think this is a good mindset and probably something that we need to say, yeah, that, that's where we need to be. He says, him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man all wisdom. His goal is that to present every man perfect or complete in Christ. And he also labors, he strives for this. He strives according to working which works in me mightily. So he's, he's focused on the mission that God has given him, the, the, the assignment that he has from God to bring the gospel to the church and to build up these churches and i'm not saying that you're going to do what paul does Uh, i'd be surprised if any of you travel all around uh asia minor and and greece and italy and all these places and go and preach the gospel but god has a plan for you god wants you to live a certain way he wants you to accomplish certain things and the question is are you striving mightily are you um, are, you, are you laboring, are you striving according to to what God has given you to do, according to the, not only the, the plan that he has, but the gifts that he has in you, the Holy Spirit working, God's word uh, teaching you what you need to do. Is that your focus? Are you doing what God wants you to do? So they're to be striving together. So there's a, there's a worthy conduct and a clear testimony of unity in the way they ought to live that's worthy of the gospel. In verse 28, he talks it goes a little bit different direction. He says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you a salvation, that from God. So, secondly, I have here that we live free from terror. Terror has become a big word in our society in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Probably since about 9-11. All of a sudden, terror became a part of everybody's um, um, vocabulary. You know, acts of terror, terrorists. Here, this is a little bit different. Um, Although, I think the terrorists, their their goal is to make you frightened or afraid. But the word terrified here is a word that does mean to be frightened or afraid. Well, what can we be frightened or afraid of? We can be frightened and afraid of a lot of things because we're human, right? We can be frightened or afraid of people calling us names, of people not liking us. We can be frightened and afraid of pain of imprisonment, so we can be frightened or afraid of death. That's kind of a natural thing as humans. Paul here says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. So he's saying, don't be terrified. And here he's talking about the adversaries. And I think these are you know, people that are opposed to the message of the gospel, people that are opposed to the things of God. So don't be frightened of them. A lot of these people can do things. We talked about different dominions, and God gives dominion to people, and Tim said it doesn't, you know, we look at that, and sometimes we wonder, you know, why does this guy have dominion? This guy's an evil, wretched guy. Well, God gives it to who he gives it to, and that's that's comforting to us. But sometimes it has consequences to us, too. If we're living in uh, Pakistan, or Afghanistan, or any of these places out there, Iran, and you're a believer in Christ, there could be some serious physical consequences for you. And God's allowed those people to be in power and in place. And so Paul says, you know, there are serious consequences. Again, remember, Paul's talking from prison here. So he's, he's not acknowledging that because of the gospel, you could have adversity, you could have trials, you could have tribulations in your life. He's not saying that's not going to happen, but he's saying don't be frightened of them because you're adversaries. Let's look at a few verses... Um, Jesus, in Matthew 10, 24, talks about this. Can I get a reader? Anybody? Ted? This passage, Jesus tells us not to fear several times. Um, he starts the passage by saying that a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Well, again, thinking back to Jesus, he was put through tribulations, trials, even to the point of death. You know, he was killed for who he was. Um, so how can we expect any less? Verse 26, he says, Do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will be revealed, and nothing hidden that will not be made known. I think the idea here is that you're doing what's right, you're suffering persecution because of it, eventually the truth's going to be revealed. There's nothing covered that can be hidden. Um, it's, going to, it's going to come out what the truth is and that you have stood for God. Um, verse 27, he reminds us that uh, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak the light, whatever you hear in the ears, preaching the house, stop. He's saying proclaim what the truth is, what I've told you. That has consequences. Um, people don't want to hear that. And then verse 28 says, Do not fear those who can kill the body. That's a very real possibility for any of us, that we could end up in a point, in a state that to preach the gospel, to teach the word of God, might become illegal. And we might suffer tribulation for that. That shouldn't stop us. That shouldn't cause us to fear, because Jesus says, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Your eternal destiny lies in God's hands, not in their hands. They can kill you here. Again, and think back to what Paul was just teaching. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. So, so what? That they can kill you. That just means you get to be in the presence of God. You get to be made perfect. You get to worship him perfectly. The pain's gone. The tears are gone. Um, you know, everything's righteous. All relationships are perfected. This is great. This is good news. So, don't fear the ones who can kill the body but not the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So, have your fear towards God. Then he puts in this here are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? What do sparrows have to do with any of this? (laughs) Well, yeah, you keep reading it, tells you that God's even in control of the sparrows, right? Their their lifespans, what happens to them. God's in control of that. You're much more important than the sparrows. God controls how long you're going to be here. God controls whether you live or die. God controls when he's going to take you home to be with him. That's all in God's hands. We don't have to worry about that. All we have to worry about doing is doing what God wants us to do, to proclaim the truth, to live the truth, to live the right way in our lives. We don't need to fear about what's going to happen to us. That's all in God's hands. We just need to trust him. So, So a disciple is not above his teacher. Let's not worry about what happens to us. You know, Jesus' death was all part of the big plan, all part of God's plan to provide salvation for us. Certainly he can use you and me to his plan to do what he needs to do in his church and in this world. Um, So don't fear. Romans 8, uh, 15. Another reader. Nathan, go ahead. So here, we did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear. We didn't receive a spirit that leads us to fear. What we received is a spirit that tells us that we've been adopted by God. We've been brought into his family. We're joint heirs with Christ. All these things are true of us. So we don't have to fear because we're part of God's family. We're part of what God is doing in this world. We're we're with him. Uh, So there's no fear there. Uh, Ephesians 4.16. Uh, nope, i am reading the wrong side. Sorry. Um, I turned the page and forgot I turn the page. 2 uh, Timothy 1.17 Another reader, sorry, I'm not even looking. Eric, go ahead. <laughs> for God has not given us spirit of fear, but power and of love and of a sound power. So here we, we've not given a spirit of fear. We have a spirit that is characterized by characterized by three things. Power. We have God's power working in us. Love, we have God's love working in us. And a sound mind, we know what the truth is, we understand and we realize the truth. So we don't need to fear because God has given us all this stuff. I want to look at one more passage because um, John was reading the Bible reading this morning and I said, oh wait, that fits. And sometimes that happens. Uh, So if we go to 1 John chapter 4, so you have to have your Bibles out. Yeah. How dare I? And I thought this was just really good because here's our Bible reading. Um, let's read verses 17 through 19 of 1 John chapter 4. So if somebody's there and wants to read... So, this is talking about love, but he brings fear into this topic here. Um, love has been perfected, has been made complete among us in this. How do we know that God's word is working in us? Is that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Okay. Well, that, how does that go together? Boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts all fear, because fear involves torment. So at the judgment, you're on one of two sides. You are either have your name in the book of life and you're with Christ forever or you're going to be in the lake of fire forever. We don't have to fear because we've experienced God's love and God's love has shown us that in the judgment, we're going to be saved from that. We're going to be set aside to be God's people. And so we don't have to fear what's going to happen. We don't have to fear what's going on. We don't have to fear when we stand before the throne of God and wonder, is he going to accept us or not? Because we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we have that assurance that God's love is working in us, and that He shows us that you don't have to fear this. Um, and then, uh, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So, if you fear, you haven't—you're not living in love. You're not made complete in love. If you still have that fear in you, and that could be someone who's unsaved. That could be someone who's saved who's not walking with God because there's still can be that doubt, that anxiety, that fear. Um, But verse 19 shows us that we love him because he first loved us. So because God showed us this love, it motivates us to be loving towards him. So I thought that was neat that that came up in our Bible reading today. Almost like it was planned. Um, And maybe it was. Uh, So we're not terrified because our conduct proves some things. Um, Going back to verse 28, Um, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, that from God. So the unsaved, it's a proof of perdition. Now, perdition is this word I like to use all the time in my daily talk. I don't use it ever. Um, So I had to look it up. Um, Perdition just means uh, destruction or utter ruin. So to them, it's a proof. It's this evidence of what's going to happen to them because they don't have Christ in their life. 1 Peter 2, 12. Let's read that. Who would like to read that? Um, uh, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah. Here's talking about your conduct. Your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. You're living the way you're supposed to be living. When they speak against you as evildoers, here's a little bit of the persecution. They may be by your good works that they observe. Glorify God in the day of visitation, in the day of their trouble. It, our conduct shows the unsaved what state they're in. You know, as they're going through and they're in here, they're and talking about that they're um, speaking against us as they're speaking against us, as they're persecuting us, and we continue to live for God and do what's right, have the right attitudes for God, eventually it shows them when they go through the same type of situation and they don't have that, that there's something missing in their lives. It's a proof of their perdition. It's a, pr- a proof that they're heading down the wrong path, that they're heading for ultimate destruction. Uh, another passage in First Peter here, First Peter 3.16. First Peter is really good. He deals with a lot of... Uh, how to deal with persecution how to deal with tribulations here but first Peter 316 another reader but
1: uh, so here here's an
0: here's another passage here uh, verse 15 says and uh, um, I just lost it wow um, sorry I, I, I completely. I I know the verse, and I I just could not think of it now. Um, But it talks about that uh, when uh, you're you're going through hard times, when you're going through trials, that uh, you may give an answer uh, to the reason of the hope that is in you. Then verse 16 says, having a good conscience, so as you're living that out, as you're following what Christ wants you to do, as you're responding to trials correctly, as you're doing what's supposed to be done, that when they defame you as evildoers, when they attack you and they persecute you, that your good conduct is going to show them that they don't live up to God's standard, that there's something missing, that they're on the wrong path here. It's a proof of their perdition. And so even by the way we live and how we respond to hard times, that shows God in us. And so we need to have that good conduct in our life. So it's a proof of perdition for them. Um, when our conduct is right, the unsaved, we'll see their unsaved state. That's the best way I thought I could put it. Uh, but if you're saved, it, it, it shows but to, but to you, and I think this is a broad you here, to you, um, it shows a, of salvation, that from God. So it shows God's salvation as you're living the way you're supposed to be doing that. There's a proof in your life that God is working in you and that God is doing what he wants in you. James 2.18. Who would read? Isabel, Go ahead. And Paul's saying here, the proof of my faith is you see me working and doing what God wants me to do. You see my faith in action. And that's the proof. And so as we look at people and we see people serving the Lord, loving the Lord, doing the right things, we can go, that person is living like a Christian. Boy, I think God has done some work in their life. I think God has saved them and God is growing them because I see the evidence coming out of that. And that's what happens when we're in this situation. We're not terrified, but we respond correctly to these situations. That For Christians, remember what, what Paul said, that people saw his life and it was helping them to further the gospel. They wanted to do what Paul wanted to do. They wanted to support Paul in his ministry. And they were joining with him in spreading the gospel because of Paul's response to his imprisonment, to the hardships that he's gone through. And it, it, it encouraged and helped other believers do what's right. And that's what happens in our life. As we're walking, as we're doing what's right, people are saying, that person is living for Christ. That is so cool. That's encouraging encouragement to me. That's what I want to do too. It all helps to grow each other. So we live free from terror. Uh, number three here, we live expecting to suffer. This is not the happiest thought to finish on. But I think it's pretty clear in the passage here, and it's consistent throughout the New Testament, um, that as Christians, we should expect suffering to come at times. Uh, Verse 29 says, For you has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted that you suffer for his sake. Having the same conduct which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So, what has been granted? Well, what does the word granted mean? Well, granted, it it's comes from the base root of the word we get grace in Greek. So, it's, uh, it's to grant, to give, to bestow upon, to deal generously or graciously with. And so, yes, Lynn? Yeah. And for us, you look at what's, what's been granted, what's been bestowed upon us, what's been dealt generously to us, it's not only to believe in him, but God has generous, generously granted to us the ability to suffer for him. Well, that's encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, it's granted on behalf of Christ here. It's, it's for Christ's sake. It's to, to glorify and honor him. And when we start looking at it that way, that that's important to us. I was going to put these verses in. I'm just going to refer to them. Um, Remember when the early apostles in the church, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were questioned and the Sanhedrin told them don't preach in the name of this Jesus anymore. You need to stop doing this. And Peter responds, well, you decide whether it's better to obey God or man, but we're going to obey God. So they go out and do it again. The Sanhedrin brings them back. They say, hey, look, we told you not to do this. Now stop it. And the apostles say, look, we are going to obey God rather than man. And so the Sanhedrin beats them, right? They, they, they beat them and say, this will teach them. The apostles go back, and they're rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Does anybody remember what they said? Because Yeah, because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's namesake. They were doing the right things and they were facing persecution for it. That's a good thing. That means we're on the right track. We're doing what God wants us to do because the world's not liking it. The world's not going to like it when you're doing what God wants you to do. And there will be consequences here on the earth, unfortunately, for that. But that's part of what it means to be a Christian, that you stand for what's right. And you're going back a little bit in this passage here where he says he wants them to stand firm, it's because there's going to be suffering coming. There's going to be stuff happening to them that they're not going to enjoy, they're not going to like, but it's going to show that they're doing what God wants them to do. Um, so it's granted to them to believe, Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 9, I'm um, looking at the time here. Yeah, we can go ahead and read that. We would like to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 9? Nathan? So Philippians 1.29 says it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe. So not only that, that means that it has been granted for the sake of Christ for us to believe. Ephesians 2.4, look at this. But God, so God's the subject here. It describes him who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, he made us alive in Christ. He's granted us salvation. Um, By grace you have been saved. He's raised us up together. He made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That Jesus come. he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So who is salvation about? It's not about us. It's about God and what he's done. He's granted us to believe. He's the one who's working in salvation. So he's granted us to believe. And I just wanted to show that because a lot of times I think we think, oh, you know, I made the choice to, to be saved. And you do have a free will and you have a choice in that. But it's God's working. It's God who orchestrates the whole thing. And Ephesians 2, I think, is very clear that this is God who did this. Um, So he's granted that to us to believe, and not only that, but to suffer. And so suffering is a byproduct of faith in Christ. If we're truly saved and we're truly living the way God wants us to do, that is a byproduct. You have been granted that on behalf of Christ. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Another reader, please. Eric, go ahead. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution at some point in time, maybe. No, that's not what it says, right? They will suffer persecution. That's a byproduct of our faith in Christ. It's something we should be expecting. It's something we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Um, It looks like, I did not put Matthew... 10, 22 through twenty-five on here. Oh wait, I think that's because we read it earlier. Is it? Yep. Um, oh, we didn't read twenty-two. Well, let's let's go to Matthew ten. I guess I thought I had it on there, but we're going to go a couple verses back. So Bibles again. Yes, Nathan, a Bible. Got a, a twenty-two, uh, Matthew ten. I'm in Matthew twenty-two. Yeah, let me go to Matthew ten. That might make more sense. Twenty-two through twenty-five. So. Somebody's there and would like to read that. Who has that for us? Um, go ahead.
1: He shall be hated of all things, for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. That when they persecute you in the city, leave me uh, into another. For verily I say unto you, that ye shall not have gone over the city of Israel, for so the will of man to come. For the is not about this master, nor the government of the Lord. It is enough for the sacral that he
0: So verse 22 says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. If you live for Christ, if you proclaim his name, you're going to earn the hate of the world. Um, he who endures the end will be saved. And this is, I think, the idea of rescued, not necessarily your salvation. on, based on you know, your, faith, your faithfulness persisting. Your salvation is based fully in the finished work of Christ. So I think this is talking about uh, physically rescued here. Um, when they persecute you in this city, it says flee to another. I'm not going to go into what that all means there, but it's, it's when they persecute you again. It's going to happen. It's assured. It's something that we have to deal with as Christians. Um, let's look at 1 Peter 1, 6-9. Again, I said 1 Peter is great for trials and stuff like that. Go ahead, Josiah. So Peter says to the church here In this you greatly rejoice If for a little while you have been grieved by various trials It says rejoice in your trials I'm not going to go through the middle of the passage there Rejoice in your trials Verse 9 says Receiving the end of your faith The salvation of your souls Your trials are working something good in you So even though we should expect persecution We should expect trials We should expect tribulations We have an assurance that God is working in us through them That God is using these for growing us, for growing his church, for growing his people. Um, It's not that we're just here and we're suffering and, oh, it hurts, that's too bad, this is awful, what's happening. The idea is God is working. God's in control and God's using it for our good. And we need to remember that. So he ends this this passage here, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So I I think this refers to two specific things. The same conflict they saw, I think this is his imprisonment in Philippi. Remember we talked about this in the introduction that uh, in Acts uh, 16, I believe, with the Philippian jailer, um, that whole whole situation, they saw him do what was right while he was suffering persecution, while he was in prison among them in their city. They know his testimony from that. So I think that's what he's referring to. And then the same conflict they've heard about me, this is his present imprisonment. This is what he's doing now. And he's saying, look, here's an example. This isn't the first time I've been in prison, and this isn't the first time I've done what's right while I've been in prison. This isn't the first time I have remained faithful to God and served him and done everything that he wants me to do, even while going through this persecution. That's the example you have. So, yes, you're going to suffer, but guess what? You can do what's right through it. You can serve God. You can... um, do his will no matter what the trial and circumstance is so again don't be afraid of them this is temporary this is they can kill you yeah they can do that but they can't take your soul away you're saved you're you're safe in god he has you in his hand and and guess what he's sovereign over all that anyway so Um, he's in control of what happens. So we can trust him, we can be faithful to him, we can do what's right and please him no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we're going through, what trials, what fears we might have, we don't have to fear because God's in control. A couple takeaways here. Um, Our conduct should be worthy of the gospel. As we are saved, so we should live in thankfulness and praise of the Lord, praise to the Lord maybe, and in obedience to his commands. Our conduct should be apparent to all who see us, that they know by, by seeing how we live that we belong to Christ. So, you know, big takeaway there, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what we need to do as Christians. The other one is we do not need to live in terror for those who may persecute us. God has called us to live for him and thus to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But this suffering is only for a short time, especially compared with the glory of eternal life with God. We can stand no matter what comes against us, and with God's help, we can endure suffering to his glory. that's, That's the whole point. Are we bringing glory to God in what we do, in whatever circumstances we're in? Whatever trials, tribulations we're going through, is God being glorified in us? Last week, Paul said that he magnifies God in his body, and even in his death, he will magnify God in his body. Is that our attitude? Is that what we want to do, is to magnify God? even if it ends up killing us, that we're going to do that. That's what God wants for us. Any thoughts, questions, concerns? I don't think I said any Greek words, so you can't correct my mispronunciations. I left those off this week. (laughs) What's that? Unfortunately. Okay, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Ted, will you close us?